From the FJC in Washington, D.C., I'm Mark Sherman, and this is Off Paper. Today, a conversation with Sean Hopwood, Associate Professor of Law at Georgetown University. Hopwood's background isn't the typical law professor's story, making it one we can learn from. And that's what makes him a perfect guest for this podcast. Through his story, we'll explore how an individual's capacity for change can be nurtured and supported, and how to create a system that does it better. Sean Hopwood's unusual legal journey began not in law school, but by chance, in federal prison during a 12-year stint for robbing banks. There, he was offered a job in the law library and took it because, even though he thought it would be boring, it seemed better than working in the kitchen. He was smart and began writing briefs for other prisoners, good ones, resulting in two of his petitions being granted review by the U.S. Supreme Court. To understand just how remarkable that is, you should know that the Supreme Court receives thousands of petitions each year, but it grants only a few, around a hundred. And very rarely does the court grant review of petitions submitted by prisoners. So to have one petition granted is special enough, but two, by a prisoner, it's really unheard of. But Sean Hopwood did it. After his release from prison in 2008 while on supervised release, Hopwood was able to land a job in Omaha, Nebraska, working for a printer of Supreme Court briefs. With a lot of help and support, he was able to overcome many of the obstacles that stand in the way of most individuals re-entering society from prison, obstacles that often contribute to reoffending and the revolving door of the system, like the inability to find a well-paying job or a safe, decent, and affordable place to live. He applied to law school and was accepted to the University of Washington, where he was awarded a Gates Public Interest Scholarship. While in law school, Hopwood worked in the chambers of U.S. District Judge John Kunauer in Seattle, and after graduating, he secured a prestigious clerkship with Judge Janice Rogers Brown of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. Now he's a member of the bar, teaching constitutional law and criminal law at Georgetown and representing prison inmates before the federal courts. He's also on the board of directors of FAM, also known as Families Against Mandatory Minimums, a criminal justice advocacy organization based in Washington, D.C. FAM, in coalition with a bipartisan group of organizations, lobbied successfully in 2018 for passage of the First Step Act, which is perhaps the most significant federal criminal justice reform to be enacted in at least a generation. Professor Hopwood's memoir, published in 2012, is called Lawman, which seems like a fitting title for a story about a guy who's been on both sides of the law. So folks, we've got the lawman in the house, and he's going to talk with us about becoming a part of the system in order to survive it, and how luck, something we can't provide, as well as available resources, something we can, helped him re-enter society in position to climb to the top. Professor Sean Hopwood, welcome to Off Paper. Well, thanks for having me, Mark. That's quite the introduction. I hope I can live up to it. So, Sean, for folks in the audience who may not know about you, uh, or even if they do, if they haven't had an opportunity to read your book, could you describe what was happening in your life um, that led you to rob five banks in Nebraska in the late 1990s? What made robbing banks seem like such a good idea to someone like yourself, a smart kid who was also a high school and college athlete with a bright future and a supportive family? Yeah, it's kind of hard to explain. Um, it's hard for me to think about now why I did such foolish and reckless things. 
given I knew better. Um, and, and part of it was, you know, depression. Part of it was immature, reckless, foolishness, um, had a problem with impulse control. Um, part of it was, you know, hanging out with other people that were similarly situated and we kind of egged each other on. Um, but I think the biggest reason, and, and, you know, everyone wants to have some reason for why I did the things I did. Um, the biggest reason was I just had no purpose in life. Uh, I woke up every day, had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. You mix some other young men to the mix, who are really similarly situated, drugs and alcohol and depression, and what you get is, you know, when my friend came to me and said, hey, what do you think about robbing this bank? There should have been several responses and appropriate responses to that question, none of which were, yes, that sounds like a great idea. Mm-hmm. Like, as in, are you crazy? Yes. Uh-huh. Are you crazy? No. Um, what are you talking about? I need to leave. Um, we need to order another beer. Uh, this was at the bar in my small rural hometown of 2,500 people. There were lots of answers to that question. <laughs> uh, and the law professor in me is like, what were you thinking? You had many options here. Mm-hmm. None of them should have included the word yes. So uh, it's interesting to hear your answer because we know uh, just from years of criminal justice research that all of the things or many of the things that you just articulated are things that contribute to the drivers of criminal behavior, right? The being with the wrong peer group, uh, lack of impulse control, especially sort of when somebody's still an adolescent. Um, those types of things. So I, I, it's interesting to hear you describe that, not, not as a researcher, though you are a researcher, but not as a researcher, but as somebody who it actually happened to. <laughs> I read a lot of research papers on neuroscience and brain science, and particularly in the age group of young men 18 to 25, given that that's such a large driver of crime in this country. And every time I read one of those papers, I just think, well, that was you. Um, You know, we like to think that people that commit crimes have to be evil and they have to be psychopaths. But so many of the crimes that are committed in this country as young men 18 to 25 whose brains haven't matured, who don't have impulse control, who, like me, it was hard to imagine spending four years working for a college degree at the end of it. Um, And, you know, the good news is you know, the brain science says eventually that will go away and people will grow out of their foolishness and stupidity. And that was certainly the case for me. But it's interesting to read those findings now and realize, you know, so many of the things I struggled with were common amongst a lot of young men. And, you know, every time I go give a talk, I never have to convince all of the women in the audience that men's brains mature slower than women's do. I don't have to cite the social science. All I ask them is, you know, criminal law is set up so that people will act reasonably in response to criminal law, but are young men 18 to 25 rational actors? Do they think and reason rationally? And the answer is a lot of times no. So you were sentenced to 12 years and sent off to the Federal Correctional Institution at Pekin, Illinois. Um, One of the things that I found so intriguing in reading your book was your description of life inside prison. Um, From your telling, 
A person needs to be very savvy and streetwise just to keep from being physically hurt or even killed by other inmates, especially if they've cooperated with the government. You describe drug use, fighting, gang activity, and corruption among staff as an everyday part of prison life. Even though you'd never spent time in prison before, you were able to figure out how to survive. How'd you do that? Well, like most of the things I've had success in, I had a lot of help. I had people that realized that I was not the guy who had been in and out of jail, um, let alone in and out of prison often, and they realized that they needed to give me some guidance on how to get through this because, you know, having some intelligence helps, but when you're in a new environment that you've never experienced before and you have this overwhelming impulse of fear, um, it's not always easy to make great decisions. Uh, And I tell you, the first couple of years of my time in prison, I didn't make great decisions. You know, we think that when people get caught for doing something wrong, contrition automatically follows. But anyone who has a child who corners the child and says, you just lied to me, a lot of times it leads to defensiveness and even more rebelliousness. And I saw a lot of that with people um, who had gone through the criminal justice system, particularly if they were young men, who had received really long sentences. It was, they didn't go to prison and just take from that, I need to change. They went to prison and they took from that, the system is out to get me, I'm bitter, and I'm going to act out. And I saw that play out in, in federal prison the entire time I was there. So I, I'm I'm still so curious to know more about sort of, how, so you were coming into this situation, you were full of fear, right? Um, you weren't sure what you were going to be confronting when you were there. Um, and it wasn't as if you had a rap sheet a mile long um, and kind of knew how to maneuver in this kind of a dangerous situation. So you said that you had some help. Obviously, um, you were able to take advantage of that. Uh, it, it just... I wonder if you could just elaborate on sort of what that help looked like um, and how you were able to, again, navigate what was a really dangerous situation for somebody like yourself. Yeah, well, I had some people that I became friends with that were older and wiser and who had been through this experience maybe once or twice. Um, And I had not. And I I listened to them. And I also, you know, I'm um, perceptive. I saw pretty quickly what got people into trouble, um, getting involved in gangs, um, getting involved in drugs and gambling, um, racking up large debts with people that you can't pay off, um, running your mouth. And, you know, I mean, everything's a quick study there. I remember the second day I went to the chow hall and I was... We had trays of food, and I, you have a glass that you can fill up with water or whatever they have to drink. And I reached my arm across a guy who was about three times my size over his food tray. And needless to say, he had a very visceral and quick reaction um, that led me to never, ever do that the entire rest of the 10-plus years I was there. And so some of it was trial and error. Um, but a lot of it, you know, I, ha- I had some people that, um, for whatever reason, realized that I needed some guidance and, and helped me out. 
So your educational background before you went to prison included a high school diploma uh, and a very brief and unsuccessful <laughs> experience in college. Um, yeah, you became a very successful jailhouse lawyer. And again, my question is, how did that happen? I don't really know. Um, <laughs> I don't think I could have named a right in the Bill of Rights when I got the job in the prison law library. Um, not only did I not know the law, but I didn't really know how to write. Um, and so, you know, I, I, if you would ask people to this day, even now as a law professor at one of the most prestigious law schools in the country, if you would go back to Nebraska and ask people that knew me prior to going to prison that Sean would become a lawyer and a law professor and litigate cases and what any of those things, they would say, you are crazy. This was a solid, you know, I was a solid C student in high school because I didn't try. I didn't put any effort in. Um, but the one thing about prison that, that helped me learn the law was I quickly realized I did not like it. <laughs> I saw way too many people who would come into the system for a few years, get back out, come back in. You know, we had a term for that. It was doing life on the installment plan. And the one thing I knew is I didn't want to do that. And so I saw the law as, you know, maybe something that I could do as a paralegal after prison. Um, but I wasn't convinced of that when I started. Uh, and, you know, for about the first six months I was in the law library, I didn't want anything to do with the law. Those books were big. They were thick. They were intimidating. Felt like it was, they were written in another language. Um, but then, June 26 of 2000, the Supreme Court decided a case called Apprende v. New Jersey. I, along with everyone in federal prison, wanted Apprende to apply to the sentencing guidelines, not because we knew why they should apply, but we knew maybe if that happened, we could get a sentence reduction. So I had a lot of motivation to start learning the law, and I did. And this is a story I don't tend to tell my students that often, which is the first brief I prepared was for myself. I sent it off to the A Circuit Court of Appeals, and a few weeks later, I get a letter back from the clerk saying, Mr. Hopwood, it would really behoove you to file this brief in the correct court. <laughs> this mm. needs to go back to your sentencing judge. So my legal career started researching the law for myself, pecking out a brief on a prison typewriter, and then promptly filing it in the wrong court. Luckily, things went up from there. Rookie mistake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, it sounds like you would, so you had the internal motivation. You didn't like, obviously, your living circumstances, your living arrangement. So that was part of your internal motivation. You wanted to change your situation. Then Apprendi comes out. That's sort of another contributing factor to your motivation. Uh, and then you wrote the brief uh, um, or the motion on behalf of yourself, filed it in the Eighth Circuit, not exactly the right court, rookie mistake, as we said. So would you, it sounds like you would characterize that moment as the moment really where you sort of decided that this is the kind of work that you wanted to do while you were serving out your sentence? I, I was fascinated by the law. The process of solving this legal puzzle, researching it, writing out the solution, I thought was fascinating. Um, but I didn't know a great deal of what I was doing. And trying to figure this all out, um, trying to figure out the law, th 
through the mechanism of federal habeas law. There's a reason why we don't teach that generally in law schools. We certainly would never teach that in the first year. It's one of the most difficult areas of law to understand. Um, and yet that was how I found the law and how I started to figure it out. Um, but, you know, I think those first couple of years, um, particularly after Judge Cuff quickly swatted down my brief, <laughs> um, I don't know that I would have kept to it uh, had the Fellers case not happened. Talk a little bit about that. Well, so after, after I lose my um, – after Judge Cuff rejects my own filing, I started writing memos for other people who were on direct appeal to their lawyers. Uh, and then I wrote one or two habeas petitions for people. Uh, and it was around that time that John Fellers, another man from Nebraska, we were both in the same unit in a federal prison in Illinois. Uh, we became friends. And one day he came and said, hey, Sean, I just lost my appeal in the Hay Circuit. Um, my lawyer says we have little to no chance of reviewing the Supreme Court. Would you help me and would you write the petition for writ of certiorari to the Supreme Court? Uh, and my response was absolutely not. Um, I knew just enough about the Supreme Court to be dangerous, um, but I also knew filing a brief in the Supreme Court is not the same as filing a habeas petition. You know, a court receives, as you noted, thousands of these a year. They grant about 1% of them. But that 1% is for lawyers filing briefs to the Supreme Court, not indigent federal prisoners. Um, to get a case like that hurts about 1% of 1%. But John was very persuasive, and I ultimately agreed to it. I Two months, this is all I did was prepare work on this petition. We sent it off to the court. Uh, John Fellers transferred to another prison, and I largely forgot about the case until one morning I was headed out to the recreation yard at 6.30, and a friend of mine came running and screaming out of the housing unit, Sean, Sean, I'll tell you, you know, it's federal prison, so the first thing I think is one of my friends is running and screaming at me. Why would he want to come fight me at 6.30 in the morning? Right. Um, but what he had was a copy of the USA Today saying that the Supreme Court of the United States had granted John Feller's case. It said how unlikely that was given that he had filed without a lawyer. And then it quoted a couple sentences from that petition that I had pecked out on a prison typewriter. And, you know, I knew it was a big deal at the time. Um, did I know that it would lead to me going to law school, becoming a lawyer, clerking, or becoming a law Heck no. Um, but I knew it was a big deal for one pretty immediate reason. I became very, very popular in federal prison. Uh, there were not many days after the Fellers case was granted where I could walk across the compound without someone stopping me and saying, Sean, you got five minutes. Let me just tell you about my case. And if you saw my mailbox at Georgetown, and the amount of letters I get, uh, in some respects, that hasn't changed. My guest is the criminal justice reform advocate, Professor Sean Hopwood of Georgetown University Law School. Before becoming a lawyer and law professor, he spent 10 years in federal prison for bank robbery. In 2018, he, along with a coalition of reformers, successfully lobbied for passage of the First Step Act, 
the law makes several important changes to the operation of the Bureau of Prisons and the federal sentencing process with the goal of transforming the system into one that helps reduce repeat offending. After a short break, we'll talk more with Professor Hopwood about his reentry after prison, specifically his halfway house and supervised release experience in Nebraska and in the Western District of Washington. I remember getting stuck in the aisle of Walmart trying to pick out toothpaste uh, and my now wife saying, are you okay? And I'm just like, I've not had this amount of choice in 10 years. You're listening to Off Paper. Hi, I'm Lori Murphy, a colleague of Mark Sherman and head of the executive education group at the FJC. We have a podcast that focuses on leadership in the federal courts called In Session, Leading the Judiciary, that I think you'll like. Each episode features current research and cutting-edge insights into leadership. Guests include Michael Lewis, groundbreaking author of The Undoing Project and Moneyball, Professor Jennifer Eberhardt, implicit bias researcher at Stanford University, and Harvard Business School's expert on psychological safety, Amy Edmondson. Each episode strives to enhance listeners' critical thinking skills, encourage expression of authentic leadership, and promote the use of best practices among judiciary executives. Episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts or on fjc.dcn. Join us. The podcast is In Session, Leading the Judiciary. So, Sean, you were released from prison in 2008, and you'd been in for about 10 years. Uh, you'd accomplished some extraordinary things, as you had uh, earlier described, in terms of your legal work while you were in prison, but the reality was that you had to re-enter society just like every other inmate does. And you were facing many of the same uncertainties. After you were released, you had to report to the halfway house in Omaha and figure out how you were going to live. You had to reconnect with your family and the woman who at the time was your girlfriend. You needed a job. You needed a driver's license. You had to stay out of trouble. What was the re-entry experience like for you? Frightening, <laughs> all the way across yeah. the board. I'm Talk not, about that. I'm not one that has a great deal of anxiety. Um, I actually don't get that nervous about public speaking. I don't even get that nervous when I have to argue before really smart judges. But I had a tremendous amount of anxiety at the halfway house. Um, so much that you know I was uh, every night eating uh, right before bed a pastry that I would buy from the vending machine that was a thousand calories. Um, and I was eating about 5,500 calories a day when I first got to the halfway house, and I was losing weight. Hmm. And part of it was I was just anxious about everything. You know, I'd never been on the Internet, never seen an iPhone, an iPad, an iPod, um, things that just normal people can do with a few clicks of the phone were insurmountable for me. Um, I remember getting stuck in the aisle of Walmart trying to pick out toothpaste. Uh, and my now wife saying, are you okay? And I'm just like, I've not had this amount of choice in 10 years. Right. And just the little things like that. Uh, I was a nervous wreck when I had to take the driver's test. Um, just the world had passed me by and everything was so new and so changing. And I was used to the same things day after day after day. That it was a lot to overcome. Um, but, you know, again, I, I had some resources. Uh, my now wife drove me around to lots of job interviews. 
Um, finding a job was not great. Um, everybody remembers what the economy was like in 2008. Mm. It's hard for anyone to find work, let right, alone. That was, that was after the Great Recession. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Let alone the guy that robbed five banks and just got out of federal prison. Right. Um, not, you know, I was. Not at the top of anybody's list. That's right. In fact, there was one, one interview, a uh, used car salesman, where um, the guy, the owner said, well, Sean, you have a 10-year resume gap here. What's going on? And I no sooner got the word prison out of my mouth, and he said, let's go outside. So we walk through the showroom past the customers, and we get just out the door. And he says, Mr. Hopwood, please don't come back here ever again. Mm-hmm. And it was at that point that I thought, you know, the ethical bar for used car salesmen is not high. I might not find work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may be difficult. And I, you know, I probably did 30 job interviews mm-hmm. and everyone said no. Um, eventually I did find a job, uh, telemarketing. Um, I had to make phone calls for, uh, um, political phone calls to people in Oregon around dinner time. And what happened was they would oftentimes scream and yell and cuss me out. And because I had been in federal prison for 11 years, my response was to do it back. And that job lasted one day. Mm. Um, the second job was washing cars outside of a used car dealership. Uh, but this was October, November in Nebraska. And I knew once it started freezing, I was out of a job. And, and you know, one of the things I quickly realized was people don't advertise jobs in the classified section of the newspaper anymore. And it was just all of these things that all these little hurdles that, I, you know, that a normal person could get over quite easily were were really difficult for me to overcome. So there were a couple of things that you just mentioned that I, I would like to drill down on. One was you were talking about sort of how your life in prison and how generally life in prison, the, the life is controlled. You don't have choices, uh, or if you do, it's not a very broad choice. Um, so that's one thing, it, 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 because you're coming out into an environment when you're reentering where... You have many choices, um, and it sounds like that can be very paralyzing. So I wanted to ask about your observations about pre-release preparation uh, from the Bureau of Prisons, what you went through, how you think it could be improved, and then also, once you were released, how that transition was for you to the residential reentry center, yeah. to the halfway house, and how that might also be improved based on your experience and even what you're observing now with people who you represent. Yeah. I talk about this a lot when I talk with federal probation officers. Mm -hmm. And what I say is, you know, I have a lot of empathy for your situation because, honestly, um, you're being penalized for the Bureau of Prisons' failings. Uh, I do not believe that you can have someone incarcerated for more than months, let alone years, and have successful reentry in most circumstances if you're not focused on that while they're in prison. And and not just the last six months, which is what the BOP did at the time. You know, there were I didn't wasn't involved in any programs to help me prepare for reentry until six months before I was about to be released. But by then it's too late. Um, by then your job skills have deteriorated your social skills. And I'll give you a couple examples of that. You know, in prison, 
when you have conflict and somebody gets up in your face and yells and screams, there's only one thing you can do. Escalate the situation. You yell louder. You scream louder. Sometimes you have to fight because if you don't, you will be raped, robbed, and stolen from, and nobody wants to do that. Well, you know, that sort of um, way of dealing with confrontation doesn't work very well when it's a wife or a boss right? or, you know, customer service, which is when I got the job at Cockle Legal Briefs helping lawyers all over the country. Um, you know, when there's confrontation, that's the exact opposite of what you'd want to do. And so, you know, it was, it was just difficult. And I was fortunate that my wife and the people that worked at Cockle um, saw value in me, despite the fact that my social skills were not great, um, and, and took the time to help sand down those rough edges those mm. first two years out of prison. Uh, because, you know, I had spent ten and a half years around nothing but guys, nothing but dudes in prison. And then I'm in this office at Cockle where 85% of the people that work there are women. And I'm at home every day. And navigating that was not easy. Uh, I also, you know, there are things the BOP could do. Um, more program. I think the First Step Act is going to solve a lot of these problems sure. if it's if it's implemented correctly. But you know, for me, reentry should be focused on the day someone enters prison. Um, there should be a plan set up then. Uh, if I had waited till the last six months and hadn't studied the law and hadn't been on my own form of rehabilitation, I would. I I, I may very well be back there. Sure. I mean, uh, you at least had some skills to lean on, uh, and with the and you also had some family support when you came out. And uh, I did, and I had a Montgomery GI Bill that I took college uh, classes that's through. Right, that's I, right. I had a lot of resources. You had spent some time in yep. the Navy uh, earlier in your life, so I had some resources that other people did not. And I kind of, you know, I would tell the staff at the prison all the time, "I'm on my own personal." rehabilitation and reentry plan. And, and it was, it was doing that and doing things on my own. Um, and, you know, keeping tethered to the outside world while I was in prison, whether through family, lawyers, and friends was really helpful. Um, and having some sort of community when I got out, I'll tell you, most of the best and most successful reentry stories I see involve community. Uh, someone gets out and feels like there are family and friends there that care about them. Uh, it operates on many different planes. One is, you know, I had two incredible lawyers and my now wife who had believed in me and supported me along with my family. That acts as a natural deterrent. The last sure. thing I wanted to do was get out and commit a new offense and put, let them down. But also, you know, if someone's living on the nice edge when they get out, living paycheck to paycheck, and something happens with their job and they have no community, or family to fall back on, that's usually when people are put to the choice of homelessness or crime. So what was happening in your life at, at that point as you were finishing up at the halfway house uh, and needing to transition onto supervision? And can you talk about what that was like and what your relationship was like with your probation officer in the District of Nebraska? Yeah, I could not wait to get out of the halfway house. Um, the halfway house I was in the conditions were worse than prison. We had two bathrooms for 75 men. Mm. Um, you know, the, the, you would be in big dormitories with people that 
we're not nearly as motivated to do the right things as maybe you are. Uh, and so that caused conflict when guys that don't have jobs want to stay up all night and I'm trying to sleep because I do have to get up in the morning. It also was, was caused a lot of friction because, um, you know, my job at Cockle at that time paid $12 an hour, which doesn't seem like much. But the people that were working at the halfway house were being paid $9 an hour. Mm. And they were not very happy about the fact that I had this job coming right out of prison and they did not. And they voiced their displeasure and exhibited their displeasure in multiple ways. Well, that's such an interesting point right there because this is a residential reentry center where they're supposed to help you find a living wage type of a job. Yes, yes. But that's not really how it worked mm. out. Um, and so by the time, you know, my time was done with the halfway house, I was very excited to be gone. Um, and I had a much better relationship with my probation officer uh, than I ever did with anyone at the halfway house, in part because he wasn't jealous of me having success and was trying to encourage success. Uh, in fact, he, he, across the board, was just very encouraging of me all the time. Facebook friends with him now. Hmm. Uh, I'm also Facebook friends with a counselor I had in prison and with <laughs> a lot of people that you would not think I am. Hmm. Um, but he always, you know, tried to help. Um, when you come from an environment where the message implicitly and explicitly every day is, you are worthless, you're a piece of garbage, when you get out, you're going to commit a new offense and come back, to have someone in law enforcement and an authority figure act like they believe in you um, was just huge. Uh, in the same way, you know, the lawyer that took over the Supreme Court case named Seth Waxman, the former Solicitor General of the United States, both he and my wife telling me you should go to law school made me believe, made me start to drink the Kool-Aid. And it's amazing what a little bit of encouragement can do, especially for someone that's coming out that's dealing with all of the challenges that people coming out of prison have to deal with. And so, you know, I had a really good relationship with him, and he went out of his way to try and help me. So while you were on supervision, uh, you had been encouraged, as you just said, by a lot of people, including uh, Mr. Waxman and the Supreme Court lawyers that you'd partnered with on your legal work to apply to law school, something you thought you'd never be able to do um, and was probably still something you could not even imagine at that point. Um, you were accepted to the University of Washington and offered the Gates Scholarship. But what that meant was that you had to leave Omaha and move to Seattle for school. It also meant that because you were on supervised release, you had to have your supervision transferred from the District of Nebraska to the Western District of Washington and to a new probation officer. And these are the kinds of things that Certainly the general public does not think about or know about, and perhaps to some degree they shouldn't have to think about it or know about it. But these are important things that can really trip somebody up when they are trying, even in the best of circumstances, which in many respects yours were, to try to turn their lives around. So what was that transition of uh, the transfer of supervision like for you from the District of Nebraska to the Western District of Washington, where you had never lived and were having to set up a new life, and no pressure, you were just starting law school on a full scholarship. 
Yeah, and that was after I had asked Judge Cuff to cut me loose six months early on (laughs) supervision, and he said no. Right, so no early termination for you. You know, Judge Cuff and I are now pretty close friends. Um, He later wrote that, you know, uh, what Sean has shown me is, these are his words, Mm -hmm. not mine, my sentencing instincts suck. Mm -hmm. Uh, We just went back to Nebraska in August, and... Judge Cuff took pictures of me and my wife and my two kids sitting up on the bench in the courtroom in which he Mm. sentenced me in. Mm. But I could never get him to give me anything in court. Uh, (laughs) And so he denied me, and so I had to go to law school, the first six months of law school while on federal supervised release. And when I got out to Seattle, you know, I had a wife, a son, uh, another baby on the way, full-ride scholarship to law school, uh, a book deal, um... I had not gotten into any problems on supervision. Mm -hmm. And you would have thought that my probation officer in Seattle would have looked at that and said, you know, this is not going to be a big deal. And yet she very much acted as if it was only a matter of time before I was going to commit a new offense. Mm. And that really bothered me. It didn't impact me in the way that I think maybe it could for someone else. but it angered me. What were the kinds of things, were there behaviors that she engaged in? I mean, how was it communicated to you that, you know, it's only a matter of time before you're going to recidivate or do something wrong and there'll have to be some kind of violation hearing or something along those just, lines? Just body language, mm-hmm. the number of times she came to my house versus the number of times that my probation officer in Nebraska came to my house in two and a half years versus the six months I was with her. Um, just every time I was around her, it just that was the feeling I got. Um, and, you know, I mean, again, I did not let that impact me. But I had a fun uh, time seeing her about two months after I was off federal supervision. I was in the elevator of the courthouse and... What were you doing there? Well, I'll I'll get to that. And so she gets on the elevator and says, Sean, what are you doing here? You're (laughs) off supervision. Like, what are you doing at the courthouse? I said, well, I work here. What? Where do you, who do you work for? I said, Judge Kuhnauer. How did that happen? I said, I applied. He said, yes. And, and, you know, she was baffled by it. Mm -hmm. And it was even more baffled when she had to come to chambers to bring pre-sentence investigation reports and rings the bell and guess who answers uh judge kunauer's new intern her former supervisee i don't think probation officers realize how much power they have mm-hmm. by just encouraging people and and making it feel like i'm not the gotcha person that's waiting to catch you to send you back and instead we're both swimming in the same direction we're both going towards you having success and what do I need to help you with that? And, you know, just that attitude's not going to work for it. That's not going to fix all of the problems, but it certainly helps. Um, And I I know people who I have watched have success coming out. And part of the things they will say is, you know, I had a probation officer that supported me and how surprised they were when that happened and how much of an impact that had on their own reentry. Even w- among those who have the best POs, the most supportive officers, there's so much failure that one can also sort of empathize with officers because it's like, you know, sometimes just as, as a matter of self-protection, have to enter into the relationship thinking, all right, 
this is likely not going to work, so therefore it's going to color their attitude uh, during the period of supervision. What, how do you, how do you I, I get to that. that. Yeah. I get people become jaded. You know, I've seen defense lawyers that become the same way. Uh, and so, you know, I understand that. But show or deal with that outside of your interactions with the person you're supervising. Uh, you know, I just also think that some of the things you can do as a probation officer to just let people know you're trying to encourage it. I tell probation officers all the time, don't always meet the people you're supervising at your office. If you want to have a real conversation with the people you're supervising, the second they walk in a federal building, the walls go up. Mm -hmm. um, because they've not had any good experiences in the federal courthouse. Uh, nothing there has ever been good or fun for them. Go meet them at a coffee shop, and you may get to have a, a, a more real, meaningful conversation with them about what's to come ahead by m meeting them on neutral territory. Well, that's so interesting that you would uh, suggest that because we are sort of observing a turn in terms of the practice in, in U.S. probation and pretrial services uh, among officers who are being encouraged um, by policy to, you know, get out into the field, visit folks um, where they are, uh, and have more of those frank conversations. And it's good to see people in their own environments. It yeah. gives you so much in intelligence information and all kinds of information that you can then use as an officer to plug into your supervision strategy. I would love to see more people who are federal probation officers working in the Bureau of Prisons. Mm. When people ask me all the time, what, if you had a magic wand and what could you do with the BOP, I, I, it's, my answer is always the same. I would replace every correctional officer with a social worker. And I think, and, and I would encourage them and, and reward them based on the recidivism rate of people coming out of their prison and get everyone swimming in the right direction towards rehabilitation and redemption and restoration. And I think we would have a lot more success with people coming out. This is Off Paper. I'm Mark Sherman, and I'm talking with law professor and criminal justice reform advocate Sean Hopwood of Georgetown Law School. We're going to take another break, and when we return, I'll ask Professor Hopwood for his assessment of the First Step Act, which has been in force for a little over a year now. Irony of the American criminal justice system is oftentimes the longer someone spends in incarceration, the least likely they are to get out and be a law-abiding successful citizen. Back in a moment. Support for this program comes from FJC Probation and Pretrial Services Education. At FJC Probation and Pretrial Services Education, we believe transformative education and training are essential to the administration of justice. We use proven learning methods to inform, engage, and inspire the people we serve to reach individual and organizational excellence. Visit us at fjc.dcn forward slash p ampersand p. Support also comes from the Advisory Committee on Probation and Pretrial Services Education. The Advisory Committee consists of Chief U.S. Probation and Pretrial Services Officers, Deputy Chiefs, Supervisory Officers, Line Officers, and Representatives of the AOUSC Office of Probation and Pretrial Services. 
It works collaboratively with FJC staff to meet the continuing professional education needs of U.S. Probation and Pretrial Services officers. For more information, go to fjc.dcn. Sean, I want to ask you about how your experience on the inside, in prison I mean, informs your work now on the outside as a criminal law and policy expert and as a scholar and teacher. Recently, you wrote an article for the Cardozo Law Review entitled Second Looks and Second Chances, where you explain how the compassionate release sentencing provisions of the First Step Act can be used by courts to take a second look at long sentences in some cases. In the article, you said something really intriguing. You said, quote, our system asks too much of prosecutors, probation officers, and federal judges to determine at the front end during charging and sentencing decisions which defendants will remain a danger and are unredeemable. What decision makers can't measure at sentencing, however, is the capacity for people to change. What do you mean by that? Well, the example I give in the article is is my former client and good friend Matthew Charles. And uh, I think his case pretty typifies what, what I see, which is Matthew had a, a very ugly criminal history. Um, violent crimes, kidnapping, shot someone in the head. By the time he gets sentenced at the age of 28 for his federal drug offense, the judge looks at everything he's done and says, I must incapacitate you for a long time. You are dangerous. And gives him a 30-year sentence. And And he, and he was dangerous. And he was dangerous. And it's hard to, you know, say, oh, well, you judge, you were too harsh. Right. But what no one could understand is that Matthew would go to prison, um, he would have, you know, uh, uh, an awakening of sorts, faith-wise, and then he would go on to have 21 straight years in the BOP without a minor incident report. Wow. I cannot tell you how unusual that is. Sure. I'm often held up as the model of rehabilitation, and I got two incident reports in 10 years, and that's only because I got caught twice. Right. Um, you know, if, if a guard is not having a great day, they can write you up for almost anything. So 21 years was pretty remarkable. Matthew files a, a motion to get out on resentencing. The judge grants it. He gets out for two years. He, he does everything we want of someone coming out of prison. He gets out. He gets a job. He gets stability. He has a serious girlfriend. He gets a place to work. He makes community in Nashville through his church. And even though, you know, the first two years are really difficult for people coming out of prison, Matthew takes every Saturday morning to go volunteer at a soup kitchen for the homeless called The Little Pantry That Could. Uh, Takes his time to do that. Well, the DOJ had appealed his sentence. He loses in the Court of Appeals, and the judge has to bring him back in and resentence him to Mm. nine years. And ultimately that happened. He went back into prison, but he was the first person that was ultimately released under the First Step Act. And not only was he released, but he gets released, and then two weeks later, he is the guest of the president at the State of the Union. Um, And a few days after that, he's sitting on my couch with my kids jumping up and down on him. And, you know, I just, it was no wonder that they sentenced him the way they did, but they just, it was not possible for them to foresee the character change that Matthew would go through. In the same way that Judge Cuff said, you know, he, he said when Sean stood up at sentencing and said, I'm going to change my life around. You'll never see me again. Mm-hmm. His quote was, I'd bet all the farm and all the animals that Sean would not have made a productive citizen. And what he showed is that my sentencing instincts suck. Mm. 
And, and I don't blame judges and prosecutors for thinking the way that they do about people who have committed serious offenses. But there needs to be some sort of mechanism on the back end that says if you do the right things while you're in prison, if you do become rehabilitated, if you do gain some wisdom, we're going to get you out of prison sooner, in part because it's good public policy. It, irony of the American criminal justice system is oftentimes the longer someone spends in incarceration, the least likely they are to get out and be a law-abiding successful citizen. Right. And so we should be trying to identify the Matthew Charles, um, Alice Marie Johnson, who the president commuted her life without parole sentence, and now who is a role model for all sorts of different things. We should be trying to find those people. They are not the only ones in the system who are no longer a danger and who probably, you know, were sentenced too harshly. We, we should be trying to find ways to identify them and get them out of prison. I have a two-part question for you. First, over the past year or so, district courts have begun deciding cases involving compassionate release. Uh, these are petitions submitted by federal prison inmates pursuant to the First Step Act. You know, what are you seeing in terms of how the district courts are interpreting that part of the act? And the second question is what you think the Justice Department and BOP have to do to change. Well, there's no question compassionate release is functioning much better now mm -hmm. that the BOP is no longer the triggering authority. Um, but what I'm seeing is are largely federal judges, in part because this is so new, being quite skittish about who to cut loose and who not to. Um, and my view is, you know, uh, there will be room for even looking at things beyond medical age and elderly cases uh, where district judges can grant um, a sentence reduction. And, and uh, several, up to I think 10 to 15 federal district courts have said this. It's going to be litigated all over. But I think compassionate release is one of these places and opportunities for federal judges to look back at someone who they may have had a certain viewpoint about when they sentenced, but realize now, I over-sentenced that person. That person has a pretty remarkable record of rehabilitation in prison. Maybe I should reconsider. And I think we should want that. I would think the Bureau of Prisons would want that because if we started seeing this happen, um, I think you would see a sea change in how people in prison behave. Right now, with 15% good time and the length of sentences, there's not a lot of incentive to do the right thing. Right. And if you're a 20-year-old kid with a 20-year-old with a 20-year mandatory minimum sentence, it's kind of hard to wake up every day and seize the day and, and think about rehabilitation. They're just bitter. Um, but if there was an opportunity to get a second look after demonstrating you've been rehabilitated, I think you would see a large change in how people respond. Not everyone, of course, but I think there would be the Bureau would be far less dangerous and violent than it is now. Do you think, though, you know, sort of thinking about sort of how sentencing has worked, at least since the uh, Sentencing Reform Act, you know, and the importance of things like truth in sentencing, you know, that if, if I, the judge, I'm going to sentence you to 12 years or 13 years in your case, and you do, you're going to do most of that time. Um, do you think that the approach that you are advising or recommending might sort of throw a wrench into into the sort of the the truth in sentencing, and then we end up back where we were with parole 
federal parole before it was abolished, where truth and sentencing was really a, a, an issue or per- perceived to be an issue. I, I, I agree, um, but I don't believe in truth and sentencing. Uh, the whole premise for that is general deterrence. We're going to give someone 20-year sentence. We're going to make them <clears throat> serve all of that. And that's going to deter everyone else from thinking about committing this crime. But again, that goes back to that assumes that the person is responding rationally. And young men 18 to 25 don't always act rationally. And that also assumes that people actually know. You can't be deterred by something you don't know. I have lots of speaking events with rooms full of lawyers. And I will ask them things like, do you know how many statutes, federal statutes there are that carry criminal penalties? And do you know any of the penalties for any of those statutes? Outside of federal prosecutors and federal defenders, no one knows there's over 5,000 federal crimes and no one knows the punishments for any of these. And no one is certainly paying attention to anything as far as individual judges' sentencing practices. So to think that, you know, the would-be criminal is going to go to the statute, the United States Code, and then to a 500-page guideline manual, and that somehow they're going to figure out what the potential sentence is, and that's going to deter them, I just don't believe that happens. So in other words, you're questioning the assumptions underlying the the concept of truth in sentencing generally. Most of the data out there says that sentence general deterrence does not work, that if you want to deter someone, it's the threat of whether or not they'll get caught. No one's thinking about the consequences. Uh, and so, you know, I often say we, we could, if we would quit being in the business of sending people to prison for so long, we could take some of that money, hire more federal law enforcement, solve more crimes, and actually deter more people. But we're not going to get a great amount of deterrence from just increasing sentences. So I, I, I fundamentally, and it's not just me, I would say almost every expert scholar that studies deterrence theory would say, we're not getting much deterrence bang for our buck with truth and sentencing. It also raises, uh, again, uh, I think another issue that's been of concern um, for many, many years is unwarranted disparity. Right. So um, if we begin, if the courts begin taking a second look uh, as a matter of course at uh, sentences that had been imposed, then inevitably we're going to be seeing disparity among what are perceived to be similarly situated individuals and perhaps they're not so similarly situated, which again, I think the concern is that it will discourage respect for the law. And, we'll, and people will view the law as arbitrary uh, and subjective, and it really just sort of depends on the judge you get, which is what I think the guidelines were really, and the Sentencing Reform Act, was, was that was something it was trying to get away, the system was trying to get away from. Thoughts about that? I, I think there are unwarranted sentencing disparities all over the system, even when we had mandatory guidelines. Uh, Whether someone's charged federally versus state leads to the biggest sentence disparity. Uh, If you're charged federally for the same crime you would in a state, chances are you're going to serve a longer time in prison because many states do have parole and clemency and Mm -hmm. back-end issues. Um, You know, how the prosecutor charges the case, whether or not the defense lawyer is good and object. I have, I've had cases with two people on a drug conspiracy. One defense lawyer objected to 
guideline calculations. The other one didn't. They got different sentences because of the quality of the defense counsel, the quality of the probation officer preparing the preset. By the time it gets to the judge, there's so many disparities baked into the system. Right. And I just don't believe that it will cause disrespect for the law to say, you know, to a guy like Matthew Charles, we're going to give you 30 years, but if you do all the right things and rehabilitate yourself, we're going to cut you loose six or seven years early. Anyone looking at that, what they're not going to take away from that is, oh, I can go commit the same offense as Matthew Charles. And somehow we're going to lose deterrence if we let him out a few years early because he's rehabilitated. I mean, some of the things that our system is based on, I just question the premises underlying them because I don't think they're empirically based. Well, certainly, um, and this is anecdotal, obviously, but in your own case, we were talking at the beginning of the program about what was going on in your life at the time. You were a young person, an adolescent, all of the right answers that you should have given to the proposition, do you want to go rob banks? You didn't give the right answers. You gave the wrong answer. Sure, let's give that a shot. You weren't thinking about deterrence or you weren't thinking you'd get caught, I imagine. No, no, I wasn't thinking I would get caught. And, you know, I was just incapable of thinking about the consequence. I couldn't contemplate the consequences of my actions on myself. So it was kind of easy to not think about the consequences of my actions on anyone else. Uh, And, you know, going back to your point about disparities, if, if, you have two people who receive a 30-year sentence, and one of them's Matthew Charles and goes 21 years without doing everything right, and the other person does 21 years and does everything wrong. It's then not an unwarranted sentencing disparity to say we're going to reward Matthew Charles by getting him out of prison because those two people are no longer similarly situated. One's still dangerous and one's not. Mm. So, you know, I know we worry about disparities, but so many of those things are baked into the system long before the judge gets them. And what we need to be worried about is how do we incentivize people to be rehabilitated, knowing that 90-some percent of people were sent into federal prison are going to come home someday. Well, and that's a great segue to that second part of the question, which is really about sort of this. So the First Step Act is really encouraging a paradigm shift in the Justice Department and the Bureau of Prisons specifically to a much more rehabilitative paradigm. But you've got an organization as with any organization that's oriented toward a different paradigm, having to make that transition is extraordinarily difficult in a complex organization. Yes. So what, what's it going to take, do you think, for the DOJ and BOP to, to turn the corner? I say this to members of Congress all the time. You can pass all the laws you want, um, but I have serious concerns of whether what you want to do will get implemented properly. I think uh, there would have to be some sort of cultural change, and, and it would have to be led from the top down. And I think, you know, there, there are ways to get people pushing in the— You know what I used to tell the correctional officers when I was in prison? I used to say, you think it's us versus them, but really we should have the same goal, right. which is to do the time as easy as possible and go home. You're doing it in eight-hour shifts. I'm doing it in years. But the goal should be the same. Well, and there were people, there were certainly BOP staff members while you were in prison who stood by you, encouraged you, provided space for you to get 
to, to, to file those briefs. Went out of their me. way. Exactly. Yeah, went out of the... And that, so really good that, people trying to do the right thing. That's right. And there are some, and I, I don't pretend otherwise, but it, it, it would take a pretty big sea change in how BOP views its job and how BOP's realm is defined by the larger DOJ apparatus um, before I would be confident that they're able to do this, even with the changes by First Step. And I am encouraged by First Step, and I am encouraged with some of the things I see coming from BOP and DOJ. Uh, it's just having been in the culture and seeing it firsthand, it's hard for me to um, be think that the BOP is going to be able to do this in a way that Congress wants it to. Well, Sean Hopwood, your story is just extraordinarily inspiring, but also very real uh, and something that certainly our audience, uh, both uh, small and large within the federal courts, but beyond story that they need to hear. Uh, and I just want to thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, I'm happy to do it. Uh, you know, I uh, have had the opportunity in the last two years to give lots of talks with federal probation offices and U.S. district courts, and I'm always fascinated by, and I will tell you, I have seen a sea change in the probation in the last five years uh, that's been quite remarkable, and I do think if they were supported better by the things we do when people are in prison, um, we would have more success with people coming out of prison, and that that's not, on, that's not the fault of the U.S. probation office, and so... You know, I, I really do think that they have turned a corner and that they are making a positive difference in people's lives, and, and that's really what it takes. Off Paper is produced by Shelley Easter. The program is directed by Craig Bowden. Our program coordinator is Anna Glochkova, and our intern is Cameron Regalado. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Off Paper wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Mark Sherman. Thanks for listening. See you next time.